Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome to the Grow Your Business and Grow Your Wealth podcast with Gary Helt. Gary is an expert in helping business owners put together a plan that will provide a better future for their businesses, themselves, and their families. On the podcast, Gary interviews other professionals who share his vision, and together they share secrets and strategies any business owner can use to build a better financial foundation for your business and your life. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, my guest is Jack Hales, who is the founding partner at Hales and Sellers PLLC, and they are estate planning and probate attorneys. Welcome, Jack. Thank you very much for having me. Glad to be here. So, Jack, what made you get into estate and probate? I mean, obviously, you know, you the attorney side, law side of things, but then you then you guys are specializing in estate and probate. Yeah, so uh, I ended up getting there a bit on accident, uh, I would say, where uh, much like many folks went to undergrad as a history major and got to my senior year and said, you know, I don't think I want to be a teacher after all. <laughs> and uh, came from a long line of uh, CPAs. My grandfather was a CPA with a successful practice for years and years. Father was an accountant in the Air Force, and he's the one that convinced me, hey, have you ever considered that taxes can be fun? And, you know, like, someone in the 20, early 20s saying, that sounds incredibly dull, what's wrong with you? But sure enough, dove in and went, all right, this is, this is actually a little bit of fun. So I got to do tax preparation early and said, well, should I do the CPA thing? My grandfather um, always said, well, I wish I'd just been a tax attorney, taking that to the next level. So I said, all right, well, let's, let's go with that. And in a lot of ways, the estate planning side is kind of an applied taxation that when you say estate planning, I think a lot of people just jump to, okay, so you write wills and trusts, which is a huge part of it. I'll say it's about 10% what you want to do with your property and family, 90% a minefield of tax issues in the background that you have to worry about. So you get to have a little bit more fun than the pure breed of tax attorneys doing this. Right, right. That, you know, and that's, I find that uh, very true. And lots of times, like you said, People do just think, oh, it's just the legal side. And, and there is a lot more into, you know, into this. I mean, you and I talked a little bit earlier and, you know, doing the, the planning side of things um, to make sure that you are minimizing, you know, taxes on your family and heirs and stuff like that. Um, with that, what, you know, again, talk to us about the planning, because to me, I always try to tell people to plan and they think that. You know, just like I tell them to do a budget and, you know, they just kind of, you know, want to fall asleep on me. Yeah, I mean, the planning side is one that, uh, you know, feel free to do it yourself, but at your own risk very much so. Because there, there's a lot of things that you just intuitively think, well, I'm just going to set this up. Uh, you know, beneficiary designations on my bank account. I'm, I'm going to give it directly to this child and they're going to distribute things later. And, okay, you've got the most trustworthy family in the world and you've got one good kid who's gonna take care of business and then distribute everything to the siblings when you're gone. 
Um, and then I get to come in post-mortem and say, well, I'm terribly sorry to tell you that legally this is your property and now you're making taxable gifts, surviving child. This would have been a lot easier if we just talked about this a little bit ahead of time. So when I talk about estate planning, you know, think beyond wills, trust, a lot of people own businesses, real estate, other things that you want to address ahead of time. And it's really looking out for these pitfalls because an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure when it comes to estate planning versus finding yourself in a probate court or dealing with federal tax law and defaults that you could have avoided. Right. Now, you just brought up uh, probate court. Can you kind of explain the difference between, you know, when you're talking a state versus probate? Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, when we talk about probate assets, um, you know, let's kind of start with a will that a lot of people go, okay, I'm going to write a will. And let's, let's take the easiest nuclear family. I leave everything to my spouse and then down to my children. Um, again, you know, feel free to do that yourself, but at your own risk, because how does this actually work? If you pass away, your spouse or children can't just wave around a piece of paper and say, hey, give me this property. I'm the executor. You really don't have a will until somebody, your executor, sends that will down to the courthouse and says, you know, testifies in front of a judge. Judge, that is the last will and testament. Most people have heard that phrase. Uh, it hasn't been revoked, changed. It says I'm the executor. And by the way, I'm not a felon. Uh, no misdemeanor crimes assessed, so I'm allowed to be an executor. And assuming all goes well, then a judge will sign an order that says, all right, you've said all the magic words, nobody's fought you on it, so you're right, it's a will, you are now appointed executor, and now you have the power to go and actually do the things the will says. And I think a lot of families find themselves where mom or dad pass, they go down to the bank with a will and say, okay, it's mine, and the bank says, well, has the judge said so? Has that been probated? And that's that process of getting legal authority. Right. So, you know, because again, going back, many people think that, you know, if you have that trust or you have that will that that's set up that, like you said, you know, it's just, okay, it's mine. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the, the, the pitfalls that you've dealt with with people in, in trying to get them to do the planning on the estate side? Yeah, so I would say, um, you know, it depends a little bit on assets, but uh, one thing that is really common in estate planning is the revocable trust, where people frequently say, I want a revocable trust because I do want to avoid probate. Uh, I don't want my family members having to go through the time and the expense of probate, and I don't really want the state of Texas or any other state involved in my business just because I'm gone. And so you frequently turn to this trust as a structure. And uh, I feel a lot of people sort of forget that, hey, there's a little bit of homework if you truly want this thing to work correctly. Uh, when I talk about trust, I frequently use the analogy of it's like having a fireproof safe. That if you ask me, hey, should I have a fireproof safe in my house? I think the answer is, well, I don't see how it hurts you. Well, what if I don't put anything in it? Well, that sounds like a very expensive paperweight. I really don't know why you'd do it. So, you know, it's that uh, follow through and actually carrying through on it. Because another way to think of probate and avoiding it is I only have to get an executor appointed and have a will sent down to the courthouse if I have a reason to do it. There's a bank account, there's a piece of property, a business, something that I need to show legal authority to transfer and handle it. If you take care of all of that with contracts, you know, trust is a fancy contract, beneficiary designations done correctly, that's how we avoid it all. It's not as easy as just a wave of the wand as much as we want to pretend it is. Right. So, you know, you just, you know, talked about the safe and it being a paperweight. 
And with that, you know, what you're saying is, is that, hey, you can set this trust up and it's great that you named all these things in it. But if you don't take your your house or the bank accounts and stuff like that and transfer that into the trust, then it doesn't do you any good. The trust is worthless. Exactly. And I'll say that's a, a very common uh not necessarily a mistake, but a preference from some attorneys that you'll have a trust agreement. And at the end, it might say schedule A, here's all of our property we're transferring into the trust. Well, that doesn't necessarily cut it. Real estate is a great example there. Uh, you have to follow up and actually do a deed in most states and transfer, you know, I am giving myself as trustee of my house, this property. That's what avoid pro uh, helps you avoid probate. You also have to think of it in terms of, okay, who's my target audience? You know, if you pass away and I'm just dealing with your house, um, all right, your beneficiaries, a surviving spouse says, I'm going to sell the house. I'm going to downsize. And so they list the house and you get a buyer. And as you get to closing two days before, the title company does their job. And they look and they see a deed that has a dead person's name on it. And they say, well, how can you sell this? What's your legal authority? Right. That goes back to, okay, well, if it's just your name, nothing else, we got to go through probate. If on the other hand, you have a title company seeing a deed that says this isn't a trust, usually it turns into, well, can you show us a copy of the trust so we know you're the trustee? Yep, here it is. Don't need judge's approval. We're good to go. Um, it's that follow through that you really have to worry about. And, you know, unfortunately with a lot of this, it's things that you don't see the problem until 20 years later, you know, especially real estate. People ignore the deed record and go, well, you know, nobody kicked me out of the house, so everything seems fine. And it's that moment when you're actually trying to do something, title company needs to be involved on selling the property, that's when you have the issue. Or you go down to the bank and they say, yep, sorry, we know you, but you got to have the right paperwork. You got to have that legal authority or we can be liable. Right. Now, in the case of the, of the primary residence that, that you have, I mean, in, in transferring these assets, whose responsibility is it to, to transfer the assets? Well, the responsibility of trusting assets is always, you know, primarily on the client. Okay. Uh, attorneys, your you know, financial planner, CPA, everyone's here to help with that. But, uh, you know, one thing that comes up frequently for me is after somebody passes, I will get that question to go, well, is everything in the trust? And, you know, as you might uh, not be surprised to hear, unfortunately, I don't get to just kind of hang over my client's shoulder through their entire life and you know, every time they open a new bank account or if they sold a house and bought a new one, I'm not always there to say, hold on a second. You know, so I can go back in my file and say, well, here's the things we took care of. Here's what we knew at the time. Hopefully everything's still in place. You know, hopefully there's not something that slipped through the cracks that's going to force us into a more cumbersome process, either partial probate or otherwise. Off of that, are there assets that you would recommend not necessarily putting into a trust? Uh, that's a good good question. Uh, I would say the uh, the gut instinct from a lot of attorneys is put anything and everything you can in a trust, um, with the exception of retirement accounts. Retirement accounts are kind of a, a quirky asset. We can thank the federal government for that. That uh, you know, there's no shortage of literature that uh, very few people have a full grasp on. So frequently, retirement accounts need an extra type of planning. Uh, as an example. If you were to just leave a, uh, an IRA and you named your estate as a beneficiary, you named a trust that didn't have certain provisions, most people are familiar with the minimum payout rules that you hit retirement age, you're going to start taking distributions. It's calculated according to your life expectancy. 
less known is what happens when someone inherits any sort of pre-tax retirement account. You give it to an estate, you give it to a trust. The default is that entity, whoever's receiving it, needs to distribute everything within five years, which is new under the SECURE Act here. And we're still kind of grappling with some magic words and restructuring. You can have a trust where it stretches out over 10 years, but overall, it's still a pretty aggressive you're going to pull this out quickly, and whenever that's going out, that's taxable income to that beneficiary. Frequently with a married couple, we'll still favor name your surviving spouse outright, do a spousal rollover, at least give yourself the option, and then we're kind of dealing with what we can as you get down there. So particularly tax or retirement accounts, you got to be really careful with those. Don't just say, all right, pointing it to the trust. Right. What about like, um, you know, great grandma's lamp that has been passed down by the from the family and other you know household items and stuff like that because i've heard both ways with that uh, i have heard both ways as well and uh, i think there's definitely no shortage of uh, academic debate on this one so i'm in the camp that when it comes to things like personal effects jewelry furniture you don't necessarily need to do anything for that anything when there's not a clear title the reason I say that is these things tend to be handled informally, you know, particularly if you've got kind of the nuclear family. If somebody wants to take a TV, piece of jewelry, they're going to probably walk out with it. It's going to be okay. You know, there's not that legal authority that I need to impress a banker or a title company or somebody to get this property. The, uh, the flip side of that is, you know, most probate attorneys will have no shortage of war stories with personal property. Um, I once had custody of a zebra rug for two months while we fought over it <laughs> or, you know, engaged in fights about whether we undersold the antique uh, property over here. We could have gotten $50 more for it. And from an attorney perspective, you sometimes have to remind people, you know, I'm, I'm kind of an expensive friend. Maybe we shouldn't fight over this. And where, you know, the first generation might have helped us out a lot is actually writing out a letter with their instruction saying, hey, here's why I want property to go. And that's really more for the family, not so much from a, I need to get control and show someone proof of authority to handle it. Right, right. So yeah, I, I do know some attorneys that will still do bill of transfers that say, I transfer all of my household contents into the trust. I, I'm not gonna poo-poo that entirely, but at the same time, if you're looking at it with a litigator's eye, you go, well, prove to me that they bought the washing machine before they signed that. You know, unless you're signing it every time you buy a new piece of property, it's a nice looking piece of paper, but doesn't necessarily do that much for you. Yeah. And that's kind of, that's kind of the, the, the camp that I've heard more from. It's like, you know, look, if it's something that's a, that I'm going to say is a consumable, you know, type thing, then yeah, you don't need to, you don't need to necessarily, uh, you know, put that into, into the trust. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the other mistakes that people make when it comes to, to these trusts? I mean, we've heard, you know, everybody's probably heard about, hey, you want to make sure that you have the trust. So then that way, if something happens to you and you need to go into a home or something like that, they don't get all of your assets. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some mistakes that I've seen frequently um, with, with use of a trust, you don't necessarily see it so much. But where people try to kind of avoid probate or try to make sure that the state of Texas isn't going to take everything, if you have to go on Medicaid, it's starting to try to gift property down to the next generation. So, you know, again, you take a completely uncontroversial family where everyone gets along and, you know, mom and dad say, okay, we're going to deed this down to our kids. 
right here, right now, so it's not in our name. Well, that's got a lot of problems from a Medicaid planning side. You know, the government's not completely ridiculous. They can see you did that. They can look at the deed. They, they know when you did it. They know what it's worth. So nice try. And you can also shoot yourself in the foot. Um, you know, just in terms of capital gains is an easy one to talk about that if you leave property as inheritance to somebody, they're going to get a stepped up basis, or at least we like to call it a stepped up basis because we like to be optimistic. It's really an adjustment. But, uh, you know, whatever fair market value is at your date of death, that's what they inherited at. So if you bought a piece of property really low and you know, I'm up in the DFW Metroplex where real estate is skyrocketing, right. I pretty much guarantee whatever you bought it for, it's worth more now. Mm-hmm. Let somebody inherit that, it's more likely that if they sell it on your death, it's going to be a wash as opposed to them having to look back and figure out, you know, okay, what'd you buy it for? Uh, I actually had a family I was helping recently where, you know, unfortunately the family farm that grandpa bought 80 years ago decided to gift it out. And we have no idea what he paid for it. It's worth an awful lot now. Uh, and they're looking at, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in tax liability just because someone thought, well, let's get rid of it. Now, you know, you talked about, you know, passing passing this down and, you know, the Medicare and stuff like that. Is there, with that, is there a look back period? Yeah, there is a look back period. So uh, Medicaid will actually, you know, see any transfers you did. And, and particularly with houses, in some ways, it's almost kind of an inexcusable error. Uh, Medicaid is federal in origin, but it's also state specific. So, you know, with kind of a Texas eye on things, I do think a lot of people tend to get really aggressive and want to gift their house right now. And you go, well, you don't really need to do that. Uh, Medicaid doesn't count certain assets when they're determining if you qualify. Your homestead is one asset they don't look at. Now, that doesn't mean you don't do anything with it. Uh, Very common, you will see what's called ladybird deeds, where you retain an interest in the house for your lifetime, and then you say, on my death, it passes automatically. So it's similar to a trust, similar to a beneficiary designation, and but that also keeps your house from being seized in order to repay Medicaid for anything out of pocket. So it's not that you want to ignore it, but gifting it isn't always the solution. You got to stop and think and you know, go back to an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Because once you gift it, all right, you know now you now you're hosed. Right, right. Um, from at a from a an estate standpoint, you know we have um, quite a few clients that you know when they move into an over fifty five community they're responsible for putting down a pretty big deposit. Um, And then, you know, eventually, you know, they pass away. And then when they pass away, the family then gets back that deposit. How is that looked upon? I mean, because you really didn't own anything um, when, when you gave that money. And then when you get it back, I mean, how is that, how is that handled? Well, so that's a great question and uh, one that unfortunately comes up pretty regularly. And, you know, the way to think of it is a lot of times when you'll do this, people will just, you know, sign your name to documents because, hey, that's how I sign everything else. And what will happen if you're not reading carefully through those agreements, they will say, you know, on your death, we will pay back whatever amount it is, this deposit. Well, if you don't say anything, frequently what happens is your family gets a check made out to the estate of John Smith. Right. Well, let's go back to what we were talking about earlier with legal authority. You go down to the bank, you say, hey, I want to cash this check to the estate of John Smith. They're going to say, are you the executor? Has a judge said you're an executor? We find ourselves in probate because 
I've got a check and I need to take care of it. And, you know, I can't make them rewrite the check to someone else. That wasn't the agreement. So that's where a lot of times it turns back to, you got to trust already, even if it's not holding that piece of real estate, make sure you work out an agreement with that facility that, hey, you're going to have this trust as the beneficiary. It's going to go directly to this place. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because I know we, we have plenty of times where people have come back and said, oh, well, I have this and, and we've run into the same thing because it's made out to the estate and it's like, okay, well, that means we have to open up an estate because you need to get the federal ID number to be able to get the bank account open to get the check deposit. And it's just this, mm-hmm. this big vicious circle. It, it's all those steps. And it's so frustrating when it's small amounts in particular, yeah. you know, it is not uncommon where someone tells me, all right, you know, we got everything out of here. There's beneficiary designations. There's $5,000 in a checking account. Well, all right, you know, legal fees, CPA fees. I think we're going to get pretty much all of that. But if you want, we can help you with it. And, you know, it's, yeah. You don't want to, at a certain point, you don't want to go chasing bad money with good money. Right. And it's so frustrating at those small numbers. Right. What are some of the the challenges that you guys are facing? Obviously, you know, last, you know, last calendar year, we were hearing a lot of things about, you know, the estate tax limit being dropped and not getting a stepped up basis and things like that. And it kind of seems to have quieted down a little bit. What, besides that, what, what, challenges have you guys been facing? Yeah, I would say that is one of the biggest challenges for people that are in the middle uh, in between what the tax law could be and will be. And unfortunately, so much of a crystal ball question uh, as far as what's going to happen. And and I'd say the reason that's a concern is, you know, I can sit here and say uh, every person has a $12.06 million state tax exemption for this year. So a married couple can pass on $24 million in wealth before the estate tax is a concern. And you go, okay, great. I don't need to worry about taxes. So I'm going to just keep it simple. Well, no, not quite. We're we're not all the way done there. And I think that goes back a little bit to when people start gifting without thinking about capital gains tax consequences. You know, am I locking in a low basis that I don't need to? Should I hold on to this? Should I do this in some different fashion? Um, And estate planning, you know, if you're in between that mark, there's still a lot that can be done that, uh, you know, you can have a dirt simple will that says, all right, I give everything to my spouse and what happens next is up to them. Or you can create a little bit of protection where you create marital trust for them or descendants trust, irrevocable trust for your children that you'll also hear called spendthrift trust. So, you know, not to bash the beneficiary, but what that means is asset protection. That beneficiary gets into a lawsuit. This is not an asset that can be immediately collected on. Texas in particular is really, really generous with protections that even if you say, you know, I'm, I'm not worried about my spouse, they don't drive anywhere, nothing's going to happen, you know, it's remarriage. Um, you know, <laughs> do you really want assets to be at the risk of passing to another spouse, even on accident, you know, where spouse remarries and they didn't do a will. And so now, because they didn't do a will, the state of Texas gave them one, you know, because that's, I think that's really the biggest takeaway a lot of people should have is you know, if you don't do the planning and something happens, the state of Texas is going to give you a will. The state of Texas is going to give you an operating agreement for your LLC. Whatever it is, there's a default. You're probably not going to like it. Yeah. I think, you know, and again, we, you know, you and I both keep talking about planning and stuff. I mean, literally, I just had this the other day. Um, A gentleman had, uh, it was his second marriage and he had a life insurance policy that his current wife thought that, 
he had switched over, changed the beneficiary to her, and he just never got around to it. And it's, you know, whatever, 15 years later, he's passed away. And, you know, the, the insurance company, the, the current wife went to collect it and they're like, uh, we're sorry, but your name's not the, the beneficiary of this policy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, so, it's one of those things. It's, you know, it's if you're- not, I've done that fight many times. And, you know, kind of another one that comes up frequently, it's uh, you have an insurance policy passing to contingent beneficiaries where uh, say you have it, okay, I give it to a child. And, you know, unfortunately you have a child predecease you, but, you know, you check the right box. You said purse stirpies, I want this going to their children. Well, their children are minors. Well, that's okay. You know, daughter-in-law is still alive and she's their parent. Well, no, not so much. Uh, insurance companies will point out, you know, parent has a right to make decisions on living. They don't have automatic authority to receive property. And so you find yourself in a situation where people, are, even with a surviving parent, having to go down to the courthouse, get a guardianship to manage inheritance for their own children. Whereas, you know, you have that insurance, name it, name a trust as a beneficiary. The trust is intended to handle all these contingencies. Well, what if a minor inherits? Well, let's create some more provisions in here that keep us out of the court, that keep this as easy and private as you can make it. Right, right. Yeah, I know. And, and it's, you know, and, and you talked about this earlier uh, with, with, you know, the gifting piece of it. And, you know, if you gift a home or if you, you know, if the, the first wife decides to give the, the you know, the, the new wife, you know, the money from the life insurance, well, that's going to be a taxable event to the first wife because it's going to be over the limit. So, um, you know, there, there's definitely, you know, you want to do good, but sometimes that can come back and bite you. Oh, yeah. And, you know, a lot of times when you're doing trusts and you have to kind of talk through estate planning, uh, my own sister will point out, you sound like an insurance salesman. And yeah, I kind of do, because I got to sit here and go through hypotheticals of yep. here's all the worst things that could possibly happen to you. And, you know, you don't necessarily need your spouse to be a jerk. You know, sometimes it's, hey, you know, lack of planning where you go, well, I really never wanted, you know, my in-laws or this second marriage or somebody else to inherit something, or particularly where you get down to children that you just sort of leave it to someone where they haven't been married 50 years, they've been married for five. And right. you're worried, well, okay, if they get into a divorce, is there some exposure? You know, is what I was leaving to my child just going to get taken up? Well, possibly. Yeah. Or even, I mean, you know, they, not even going to that extreme, you know, mom and dad go away on a vacation and something happens to them when they're on vacation and the kids are at home. And then, like you said, if you don't have this, then who's taking over it? It just, you know, and that, that becomes a big problem. Oh, oh, and that's uh, absolutely true. I, I feel like when most folks walk into my office, you know, it always starts with, okay, we'd like to make a will or trust to avoid probate. Uh, on my death, that's always on the mind, you know, very happy discussions. And unfortunately, I get to, you know, make it that much happier and say, well, have you considered the possibility of a stroke? Have you considered the possibility you're comatose? For whatever reason, you can't manage property. And there's also that gap to go, you know, you're not dead yet. A will doesn't do anything as long as you're alive. We've got to fill that gap. Powers of attorney work. They're great, but that's not necessarily the end of the story. you got to have a whole lot of different things in place. Right, right. And and bringing up the power of attorney. I mean, you know, uh, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, you know, because everybody thinks that power of attorney is good forever. 
Yep, that is another very common misconception. So, you know, I made the comment, a will's good if you're dead. Uh, power of attorney is not. Power of attorney works as long as you're living, but on death, that goes away. So that's another very common issue where you go, okay, you know, older parent, you have a child managing things with a power of attorney, and they say, I've got access to the bank accounts. Everything's fine. I'll take care of it. Postmortem, bank says, nope, it's frozen. Go find yourself in probate court. Go handle it. Uh, it's actually similar and kind of emerging with medical powers of attorney even, mm-hmm. that you have a medical power of attorney that's there you know, all the way to end of life decisions. But the moment you're deceased, that's not the same document as something that gives someone authority to handle funeral and burial. That can be a really big issue in Texas, as an example, where uh, I think cremation is increasingly popular. Right. And when it comes to who gets to make a decision with funeral and burial, if you don't have the correct document, State of Texas spells out the default. So, you know, it's a spouse first and then children. Well, what if I have five children? All five of them need to sign off and consent to that cremation before it can happen. So, you know, hopefully everyone gets along great. Hopefully everyone's in town. I've, I've seen that even in uh, situations where someone had prepaid funeral arrangements that you'd think, well, all right, they lined up everything. They dealt with the funeral home directly. And then when it t- time came to actually follow through, they said, oh, well, you know, glad to be talking to the two of you, but you need to go get your sibling in Maine to sign off on this also. Um, a lot of different hats that are required legally. Right, right, exactly. We've covered a lot of stuff. Our time is, is going by quickly here. What have I not asked you that you wish I had? Oh, that's a great question. You know, it's, uh, it's so difficult to compress this stuff into a short amount of time. Uh, I would say one question is, okay, what's something that you can do that makes things easier for my family? And as hard as it can be to think about, you know, the trust is great, having plans for incapacity, death is great. I will say a lot of times I am the first phone call after somebody passes away, which, you know, I'm here to help any way I can for my clients, you know, absolutely love to, and I deal with this stuff day in, day out. At the end of the day, I'm also a property lawyer. And I think a lot of times right after death, the first thing you should be doing is, you know, I want you to be able to mourn. I want you to get things together. I want you to handle funeral and burial. Things like prepaid arrangements are huge, huge emotional help to your family so that they can kind of sit back and go, okay, you know, all this stuff with the house, the bank accounts, we can put that off a few weeks. You know, it's not urgent. Right, right. Very true. So Jack, if, if people like what they've heard, and they want to reach out to you, how can they, how can they reach out to you and talk to you? Uh, yeah, best way I'd say is through our website, which is halesandsellers.com, H-A-L-E-S. Yes, there's an S at the end of Hale, but I'll forgive you if uh, you call me Hale, but halesandsellers.com. Um, you can reach us through, we've got a Facebook page as well. I think we pop up on Google. <laughs> yeah, maybe just a little bit. Hopefully, I think we're up there. Right. All right. Well, we really appreciate your time today and, uh, and your words of wisdom. Thank you. No, absolutely. Thanks again. It was great talking with you. Today, our guest was Jack Hales, who's the founder, founding partner of Hales and Sellers PLLC. And we'll see you guys next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.